Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. I think we've misunderstood then the fullness, at least, of what the Reformation was about. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, the Reformers did go to bat when it came to matters of soteriology and ecclesiology. But on a host of other doctrines, they saw themselves as simply retrieving Christian orthodoxy without debate, without question. In fact, to, to differ and to divert would have actually uh that well that that would have given credibility to rome's charges of innovation Mm. and uh that the reformers were a sect and even heretical welcome to the guilt grace gratitude podcast a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic reform christian faith Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, sponsored by Lagos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today is a book club episode. We're welcoming back Matthew Barrett today. He's going to be talking about his new book, published by Zondervan Academic, The Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So this conversation is going to be uh, brought to us again by Zondervan. And so if you go to our show notes, there's a link that will take you to this book so you can order it for yourself. And then also some other uh, reminders about uh, our show and how to connect with us. If you need to find a local church to call home, there's a local church finder. Find a reformed or confessional church near your area. So if you're not part of a church and after this episode, you're going to be pretty uh convinced that you need to join a reformed or confessional church. So um, we hope you guys can do that. And then also just how to uh, find uh, just more about our show, what we do, how to connect with us, 
Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram. These conversations are also posted on YouTube. So if you subscribe to us, you can keep up to date with our uh, our seasonal episodes as well as our book club episodes. And then, uh, yeah, any other information about our Bridge Builder sponsors? And so we'll just jump into the show and I'll let Peter further introduce Matthew Barrett today. Yeah, we have Dr. Matthew Barrett, who's Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, the Executive Editor of Credo Magazine, Director of the Center for Classical Theology, author of Simply Trinity, which is the last book we had him on, None mm -hmm. Greater, Canon, Covenant, and Christology, which is in the NSBT series, in God's Word Alone. He is currently writing Systematic Theology, and somehow he still finds time to breathe. So it's it's a pleasure having you on the show, Dr. Barrett. Great to be on again and to join you. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talking about uh, the Reformation. Absolutely. Yeah. So our uh, icebreaker, and I, I kind of lied when I told you you don't know the question I'm going to ask you, because you do actually know the question, because I already asked you the question. It's we're, <laughs> we're fellow Biola alum, which is which is not yeah. all that... Uh, not all that popular as like kind of reform people, but Michael mm -hmm. Horton's a bio alum, you're a bio alum. So yeah, if you want to, yeah, talk to uh, our audience a little bit about your uh, Biola, <laughs> how you found yourself at and kind of reform circles after that. Yeah, well, uh, my wife and I both went to Biola. And if you've read, I forget what book it's in. Uh, here's my forgetfulness coming through. Uh, <laughs> but you've also written like 15 books. I'll I'll give you a <laughs> yeah. I'll give you a pass. <laughs> yeah. uh, it might have been none greater uh, or simply Trinity. One of those. Uh, I talk actually mentioned uh, Biola. I think because, I, I think you're right. I think that's simply I think yeah. that's simply Trinity. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, I <laughs> I met my wife there, Elizabeth. Yeah. And I Which I just so uncommon story. for Biola students to find their yeah. husband or wife there. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, no, it, it was it was a great it was a pivotal time in my life um, because I had grown up in a church that was faithful to just preach through books of the Bible, you know, sometimes verse by verse. I had not really been introduced to theology, yeah, um, in the, in the sense of systematic theology, and so that was a whole new awakening for me. Uh, my wife, my now my wife, she's she was instrumental at the time. Um, huh. She was taking classes on theology, and uh, I I was a little bit embarrassed because she <laughs> was was she saying, yeah. "What do you think about the problem of evil?" And uh, you know, is is God's sovereignty uh, exhaustive and meticulous? And and I was a bit uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it. Uh, and, and then she started to give me books. Uh, she said, have you ever read Augustine's Confessions? And oh, there you she go. bought me a copy. And then nice. uh, what about Calvin's Institute? So yeah. isn't I, this like it usually works the other way around where the guy's the <laughs> one who finds it and then hands it to the girl. That's right. That's right. So to this day, um, if she ever complains about, uh, you know, how immersed I am in theology, uh, I always say, you know, this is your fault. Uh, this whole thing's your fault. So, <laughs> no, but we, we, uh, Biola was a, a great place. Um, to this day, we have very fond memories, a great place for us to, uh, in some ways, cut our teeth on theology and start to think through the big questions. And really, from there, uh, you know, the reading not just the scriptures, but an Augustine or a Calvin, yep. 
uh, introduced me to not just the world of theology, but to classical theology and to how classical theology then, uh, you know, comes to life and in reform theology. And that was just, um, I, I know some people have, I'm sure, you know, given your show, you, you're aware, you meet people like this, but some people will tell stories about how they, you know, were very feisty and hostile at first. And then, but then the Lord, you know, sounds like, like me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> He's like Saul on, on the road to Damascus mm -hmm. or something. Uh, I never had that experience. Wow. Um, ironically, even though I had grown up in, in a more or less Arminian type of uh, upbringing sure. of church, they said, well, we were committed to the Bible, so we're going to preach through the Bible. But the irony was uh, that method then meant when I was introduced to classical and reformed thought, I just said, That's yeah, Bible. of course, <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is just Bible. Yeah. Uh, so it, it wasn't this hostility. Uh, it was more of just re almost recognizing, oh, these are the, the actual categories mm. for what I've just assumed when I would read Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 or, you know, texts like that. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's really helpful. Um, kind of as a, as some, some background for, for some of this stuff too. Um, so yeah, my, uh, my first, I'm actually going to skip my first question. You already gave, gave us our, our background <laughs> and, and, and yourself, which is, which is awesome. Um, but there's, there's been so much, um, written whether it be theologies or history or, or whatever it is and people can find these in their bookshelves or find these uh, on other bookshelves uh and it's really i think kind of hit kind of a fever pitch to last like 50 years and really really so yeah. like the last 10 years um yeah. so with everything that's been written already how does reformation as renewal add to the conversation versus just kind of like kind of be amongst the conversation and maybe yeah. what's a unique approach to the same thing? Yeah. Well, I think it, it contributes in a variety of ways. You're exactly right. I mean, what, there's just mountains of books on the Reformation. I've got bookshelves full of them. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's, there's much good that's come from that, you know, I, uh, especially when you look at like, the Steve Osments or the Heiko Obermans yep. or the David Steinmetz the of dudes, the world. Yeah. yeah uh, so many of these colossal historians have contributed in amazing ways. Um, uh, you know, take uh, Heiko Obermann. I mean, without him, would we really understand the depths of the connection between Martin Luther and how he's reacting in oh, 1517 yeah, against Gabriel yep. Beale? Um, and, and, uh, Osmond with, you know, his, uh, the way he uh, builds into the reformation by, by introducing you to the medieval period and so much more, uh, David Steinmetz, his, his books on, on Luther and Calvin. Um, I, I think that a lot of these scholars did us a great favor at the same time, though, some of their writings are definitely, um, uh, how do I put it? They, they definitely were for a specific time and sometimes more for a, a very specific audience. Totally. Yeah. And so um, even in, in the decades since, I think we've seen, yeah, a number of, of books still come off the press, but uh, I'm not always confident that we have really understood the legacy that some of these individuals are left behind. Mm -hmm. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, 
every once in a while, I'll still pick up a new book on the Reformation and it just jumps right in the 16th century. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, if it's as new, if, like, oh, it's just out of nowhere. Yes. As if it's, you know, ex nihilo. <laughs> and uh, that's really problematic because then we could be tempted to, to start buying into caricatures as if the Reformation is just this massive break from the past. Hmm. Uh, as if it's this this completely new thing and it has no connection to say the church fathers or the creeds yeah let alone you know the the dark ages as, yeah. as sometimes we call them yeah um so that's one issue the, the other issue that comes up is maybe sometimes on a, on a more popular level we love the the, the stories right and that's it's that's good you know we love the stories of the reformation you know luther in the 95 theses and, yeah. yeah um but I think sometimes there's a there's there can be a, a risk there as well, because we sometimes forget uh, the theology and, and maybe even the fuller context for those very stories. Yeah. Um, and, and so my book kind of comes into the conversation, first of all, to give um, it's not comprehensive mm -hmm. uh, as big as it is. It's really not. <laughs> yeah. But uh it's sweeping in the sense that it's trying to give a fresh history of the Reformation that's, first of all, theologically minded mm -hmm. rather than merely a social history. And second of all, uh, it's it pays attention, though it can't do it exhaustively. It does pay attention to the medieval context, mm -hmm. uh, because I think that without it, you really can't understand what the reformers are about what they are reacting to and what they're not reacting to. Yeah. And then the third thing I would say is um, it, even though this isn't the main purpose of the book, the book is very aware that um, it is giving a history of the reformation that pushes back against and moves beyond other narratives that I think we have sometimes entertained that are extremely unhelpful some of those narratives are narratives that have lamented the Reformation as if we, we blame the Reformation for schism and perhaps even the secularism that's resulted from yep, yep, modernism. Yep. Totally. Other narratives, which might be more common in our circles, that celebrate the Reformation, but do so as if it's a it, it, the Reformation severs its ties with the church Catholic, small c Catholic, yep. uh, Catholic meaning universal church. Mm -hmm. As if it's a, if it, as if uh, the, the reformers are these rebels and and yeah. they're mm -hmm. radicals and thank everything God was completely arrived. bad. Let's start with the new slate. Nothing is going to change us. Nothing's going to affect us from what we just went through. Yeah, and and then you know added to that is this understanding of like a, the Middle Ages, like a thousand years of history, as if this is all dark ages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this is a very popular narrative among evangelicals. And so my book tries to move past some of those narratives to say, actually, those are pretty extreme. And if I think if we listen to the reformers and their own voices, they're telling us they're actually telling us their reformation is about renewal. Uh, and and even a retrieving of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church to, to quote the Nicene Creed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds a little bit like the title of this book, Reformation as <laughs> Renewal, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder where you got that from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got about three questions in a row, but <clears throat> before that, I as you were talking, there was a, a couple things that came to mind that I'd like to ask on behalf of probably the audience too. 
just uh, channeling kind of what they might be thinking is, you know, something Peter mentioned pretty early and, and you're nodding your head with is there's this in the last 10 ish years, there's been a resurgence in interest in re- reformed theology. Uh, uh, what, why do you think that is? Um, wh- why do you think that that's happened recently? Yeah. When the reformation yeah. was 500 years ago and all of a sudden we're seeing this. <laughs> again. Yeah. And, and this book in many ways speaks to that gener- to that generation. Uh, so if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, I remember when I first, uh, stepped into this world of reformed theology and, and how exciting that was. And yeah, maybe it's been complicated since, you know, but, but I remember that. Well, then this book is really for you. Um, I think that this book speaks in to that whole resurgence because there's, you know, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, there was all of this excitement over reformed soteriology to be a bit more specific. And yeah. so you had all kinds of people that maybe would not usually even consider uh, the doctrines of grace suddenly excited about them and realizing for the first time these are biblical. And and not only that, but the reformers are our allies, you know, to be Protestant, they, they really thought about these things and and, and they even confessed these things and wrote about them in catechisms and confessions. So that, that is wonderful. Uh, don't get me wrong here. That I think that was a, a wonderful uh, surprise at the beginning of the 21st century. Yeah. Um, there is maybe uh, an accidental consequence, though, that I think has been negative. And it's this. Uh, sometimes, just unwittingly, we have assumed... Well, to then be reformed means that that just addresses my soteriology. Yeah, how I was saved. That's right. Hmm. Now, it certainly does. Calvinism. Uh, I mean, the, the first book I wrote, Salvation by Grace, was all about that. What is this, <laughs> exactly. What is effectual calling and, and regeneration? So, so don't get me wrong. It absolutely is. But it's much more than that. Yeah. And we really should have known better because... Uh, isn't it ironic that not all, but sometimes some of the same figureheads that were teaching us a reformed soteriology uh, were not reformed in, in even classical no. uh, in other doctrines like the Trinity yeah. or Christology. <laughs> yeah. And we had no clue. We, we were clueless. So this is an odd scenario, right? Where you could have a theologian rejecting eternal generation. Yep, yep. Which is just basic to the Nicene Creed and being Christian and Orthodox. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then turn around and say, teach the doctrines of grace. Yeah. That's a, that is a peculiar phenomenon. Yeah. I, I don't know. Historians in 50 years, 100 years might look back and be able to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. But all that to say in terms of our conversation, all that to say, uh, I think we've misunderstood then the fullness at least of what the Reformation was about. Mm -hmm. Because yes, the reformers did go to bat when it came to matters of soteriology and ecclesiology, but on a host of other doctrines, they saw themselves as simply retrieving Christian orthodoxy without debate, without question. 
in fact, to to differ and to divert would have actually uh, that well that that would have given credibility to Rome's charges of innovation hmm. and uh, that the, the reformers were a sect and even heretical. And they certainly were aware of that accusation and didn't want to give credence to it. Yeah. So one of the things I try to do uh, is to put the story of the Reformation within this broader theological context to, to show, listen, when we go back to our Reformation forefathers and their Reformed children, mm-hmm. we need to, to understand that they thought of their program first and foremost as a renewal of the church, uh, not a, uh, a radical rebellion and uh, divergence from the church. They would have mm-hmm. been appalled by that. And they looked at the radicals of their day and they said, well, that's their agenda, but that's not ours. Mm-hmm. Totally. Good. Thank you for getting into that. <clears throat> okay. First real question. <clears throat> the reform, the reformation has so often been labeled a break from the Roman Catholic church, thinking like if there was a Roman Catholic church was like a tree trunk. And then somehow we went off. Um, that's been often labeled that we were breaking off from the Roman Catholic church or radically a new episode within church history. We're creating a brand new thing. Um, especially for so many today who have no bearing historically. And you were going into that just now and churches without a clear understanding of their own theological history. And so why is it so crucial that we underline what this is renewal? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that word is, is really priceless, isn't it? Um, I, I, I think of, well, a couple of, statements i have the the reformers in my ears i suppose um uh no i'm actually cheating i've, I've got my book right here in front of me there you go. in front of your eyes <laughs> but, there we go yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um and and two quotes that I, I just i can't uh turn away from one is by martin bootser mm-hmm. i don't know if, if listeners are familiar with this book of his it's called concerning the true care of souls yep. uh because yep. bootser was really a pastor yeah yeah and this is another story you know, that I talk about in the book, but he's not entirely responsible, but he has a, a major influence on Calvin at a strategic point in, in Calvin's exile from Geneva. But anyways, uh, Bootser has this great sentence in that book where he says, he's talking about Rome. He says, you know, they accuse us of apostatizing uh, from the church and destroying its discipline and rule. But the fellowship of the Christian church consists not in ceremonies and Notice his language here. He says outward practices, Mm -hmm. but in true faith, uh, in obedience to the pure gospel and in the right use of the holy sacraments as the Lord has ordained them. So your question about renewal, there it is. Um, I, I don't think that the reformers thought of themselves I mean, even Luther is as bold and and as uh, as bold as Luther could be with his words, especially from fifteen seventeen to about fifteen twenty two. Yeah, the first um, cage stage Calvinist or whatever you want to call yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even Luther, right? Luther understands that he is actually trying to be a true Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I would say even second generation reformers like calvin 
they understand this and articulate it in their own way. Um, there's this one point in Calvin's Institutes where he says, if the contest were to be determined by patristic authority, mm-hmm. the tide of victory, to put it very modestly, would turn to our side. So, I mean, that gives you a window into their mindset, right? They, um, they would have understood Rome's accusation of, of breaking from the church. They, they, they were appalled by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they turned it on Rome to say, no, actually, some of the things that you're teaching uh, the church, those are innovations. And the reformers, you know, with each decade, they started to do the historical work to show that, Uh, which means that they thought of themselves as trying to renew that which was truly Catholic. And at the end of the day, that meant Catholicity could not be as narrow as Rome. Yep. Uh, Instead, Catholicity, well, that's too narrow. It has to be much broader than that. It has to actually align with the church universal that yes, begins with the apostles, but then moves forward with the church fathers and and the medieval theologians as well. That's not to say there's no disagreements, but it is to say that they thought of their program first and foremost as a type of renewal uh, in which it was grounded primarily at least in that which is invisible, namely faith in god the god of of christian christian orthodoxy and christ and the gospel of jesus christ now that didn't mean and i i show this i have some chapters on calvin calvin sometimes is misunderstood as if well you know calvin had no appreciation for the external yeah um and and sometimes we look at like some of his words about icons but there's been a lot of good you know research done to show well yeah but even still calvin flipped this around to say he believed in living icons mm-hmm. and th- so then he would talk about everything from creation to christ to the sacraments to baptism lord's supper to the fellowship of the assembly of the saints and, and so much more in other words i think the reformers thought of their their unity as much broader than than rome they thought of rome's unity as too narrow because they thought of unity first and foremost as something uh that is tied to that which is invisible um these doctrines of the faith that then had outward manifestations rather than what they sometimes felt was was quite the reverse with rome absolutely so actually it's that the reformers were being uh small C Catholic and it's the Roman Catholic church that branched off and the council of Trent really confirmed that branching off from the small C Catholic church. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, it's not funny. I mean, it's, it's fitting. (laughs) I should use that word. (laughs) It's fitting (laughs) that you put it that way because uh, towards the end of Luther's life, he says almost exactly that. And, and keep in mind, even towards the end of Luther's life, he's, he still is delivering some very feisty sermons oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, against Rome. But at the very end of, um, you know, th- throughout maybe, maybe the, the latter portion of his, of his life, he says that. Uh, he says at one point, Rome alleges that we have fallen away from the Holy Church and set up a new church. 
And then he says, but we are the true ancient Catholic church. Mm-hmm. You have fallen away from us. Mm-hmm. Now, I, as you can you know, imagine, that really infuriated them. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it's a bold claim. But, but what Luther is after, I mean, if he's right, I mean, imagine what that means. It means that if the reformers aren't really the ones with, with all the innovations, then if they are actually more faithful in the end uh, to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, well, then Luther can say, no, we stand in that, we have every right to that that stream Mm -hmm. of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. We're not outside of it. And if someone has deviated, if someone has shifted away and fallen away, then then it's actually, it could be you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and that's where um, I think Luther is maybe at his best because, and this is where I think we can miss, we can misunderstand Luther, right? Because we look at, you know, his, his uh, heroic s- statement is, is sometimes we'll, we'll call it uh, it's a diet of worms. Um, here he's standing on the authority of scripture, rightly so. And um, we sometimes can, can then run with that a little bit too far to think, well, Luther thinks of himself as if he has the Bible and no one before him did. Hmm. Luther didn't think that though. <laughs> mm-hmm. And here in that, that quote I just shared, both at the beginning and the end of his life, he acknowledges as much to say, no, actually, I, I, I think that, that uh, my church is in continuity, mm-hmm. whereas, whereas yours actually is the more innovative one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, Call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to an admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Every reformer has a theological and historical context, especially the first-generation reformers who self-identified as small c, little c Catholic, Christians, uh, uh, small c, little c Catholic Christians. They were uh, 
reared in the medieval context, medieval theology, scholasticism, and the like. So uh, what is the understanding of the context of the reformers and the thousand years prior to them that's so crucial for understanding both their theology and the way they formulated it to it? Because it is very important to understand the early church fathers, the patristic period and all that before you jump right into just the 16th century. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think you're right on that. Uh, One of the difficulties in in writing this book was um, it really, I mean, I give around 300 pages, maybe a little bit more than that, to the medieval, uh, really, really the, 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 what we call the high middle ages and then the late middle ages. We have to remember, like you said, this is a thousand years. You have the early Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages, and the late Middle Ages. This is almost half of church history. So, you, I mean, if we just stop and think about that, well, that then that means it's quite silly, isn't it, to to then just you know walk into our Protestant classrooms and just dismiss with with the wave of a hand uh, the Middle Ages as if we're pro Reformation. Yeah, so or the means, dark ages, which has been coined for a very specific purpose to say dark versus medieval or or whatever it may be. Yes. Uh, well, just if we're going to be good historians, right? Let's just put aside what what whatever positions we land on at the end of the day. Uh, that that would be ridiculous, right? We, we that just is a terrible way to approach history because clearly in a thousand years, uh, <laughs> there's nuances and there's yeah. there's entire. Uh, stories to be written in terms of theology and and, uh the the church itself so that being the case um we have to then ask the next question is a very reasonable one well okay if it's a thousand years what are the reformers responding to and what are they not responding to uh surely they're not responding to absolutely everything in the middle ages uh the, the thing, I, I mean, this is a word of encouragement to listeners, if, if you love to read the reformers, don't overcomplicate this. It's not like you, you have to like, oh, man, I've got to, you're telling me I got to become this like expert on the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. You don't. I mean, in, in one sense, just pick up the reformers. You'll start to notice who they're quoting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or even if they're not quoting them, you'll start to notice that they seem to be alluding to something before them. Yep. yep. And it's not always negative. And so, in other words, I mean, just think of Calvin's Institute, since we mentioned that earlier. Calvin is, especially by the time you get to 1559, Mm -hmm. Calvin is quoting and referencing and echoing the thought of not just church fathers, but medieval theologians Mm -hmm. around every corner. Um, And when he's he's not doing so explicitly, uh, those, those who know the Middle Ages will will recognize. Oh yeah, I know where that came from. Mm-hmm. He's he's appropriating their ideas here, maybe even for his own purposes. Uh, so simply read the sources yourself, and this will pop up. All that to say, when we come to the reformers, uh, take Luther for example. Uh, well, fifteen seventeen, Luther. Of course, we're we're drawn to his ninety five theses, but he also writes these dispute these these theses. It's basically a disputation against classic theology, as he calls it. Yep. But again, what part of classic theology? Exactly. Are we talking yeah. about Anselm? Yeah. 
are we talking about Aquinas? Are we talking about, uh, or are we talking about someone in the late medieval period? And sure mm -hmm. enough, as it happens, Luther is is born and bred on a late medieval scholasticism that is in major ways, both philosophical and theological, has departed from, very intentionally so, has departed from earlier scholastics. Uh, and so you, all you have to do is, you know, read Luther's theses and you realize, oh, he's just calling out <laughs> individuals like Don Scotus and William of Ockham and Gabriel Beale. And he's, he, even though he, he aligned with them initially, he's realizing, well, their, their voluntarist, nominalist uh, philosophy is having a soteriological effect that seems to be, what is it, semi-Pelagian perhaps, maybe even worse. And Luther gets to the point where, where uh, he can't tolerate it anymore. It, it, in one sense, it's driving him to despair. Um, others, other pockets of the Reformation, they don't have that same experience as Luther. Uh, and, and sometimes it's because they're not trained in that via Moderna, uh, yeah. soteriology and philosophy. They might be trained in Thomism. Uh, you look mm -hmm. at uh, Martin Boots or Peter Martin Vermigli, uh, Jerome uh, Zonke and others. And so they don't necessarily have that same crisis. Sometimes that means they're a bit more uh, conversant than with a broader sweep of the Middle Ages to be able to discern, okay, what aspects do we agree with? What do we disagree with? Um, all that to say, I, I'm not denying that the reformers take issue with the Middle Ages on, on any number of things when it comes to say, uh, transubstantiation, for example. Okay. Yep. Um, but to simply paint them as if this is just a wholesale rejection of the military is just silly because uh, large swaths of their theology from the Trinity to Christology to ethics, eschatology is incredibly indebted, not just to the scholasticism, the scholastic theology of the Middle Ages and, and philosophy, but, but also to uh, its ethical framework in which it, I, I know that this is a, a you know unpopular to say today, but but in which they do see um, a a strong chord of participation uh, in the likeness of God that exists in in this world, and and then they try to think through it through a Protestant lens. Well, what does that then mean totally. in terms of salvation? Uh, that disappears. That disappears when you get to the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. and suddenly. The, that whole paradigm is 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 uh, compromised. Oh, I get totally. It. Yeah, I think when people think of the reformers, like you were saying, we because I, we tend to be historically ignorant, especially so evangelicals, and, and we tend to be the ones who kind of convert to reformed, um, and we don't really know our history. That we we kind of assume, well, they had the same context we do, and it's kind of there's like in the waters, yeah. and this is the, this is what we're doing. <laughs> Um, and so we, I think we, we place our context on their context and say, well, if we were in their place, like we would know better, but like that, that's, yeah. that's all they had. Like the, the books on their shelves were Aquinas, were Aristotle or Pla like that's, that's who they read. That's who they were, they're raised on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think the context is key. And, and so, um, it's important. It is important then, I would say, you know, if you're at a, a Protestant school, we should we should have classes. Um, you know, it's amazing to me to this day, you go and look at uh, Protestant seminaries and 
a thousand years of history is hmm. it's it's either taught on very briefly or not yeah. at all yeah and that doesn't do justice then to when we do enter into a great class on the reformation because then we don't understand the context and and in the end that that leaves us vulnerable to certain narratives uh, an oppositional narrative as i call it uh that we've been describing or to um another popular narrative that would then look at the reformers and say well uh they maybe surely they're to blame in some sense then for for the modernism that that comes next what's so ironic about this is is that uh oftentimes we don't realize some of these narratives have been around for a while when you look at protestant liberalism in the last century and a half mm -hmm. and uh it loved to celebrate the reformers as as these proto uh, preliminary <laughs> yep. enlightenment yep. men, yep. Uh, as if they're they have this modernist uh, tendency, and um, so if you don't know the context of the Middle Ages and what the reformers did or did not do with with uh, the theology of the Middle Ages, uh, you really don't know what to do with those type of narratives, and uh, we we can just kind of default to one or the other. Totally. And, yeah. And being wise enough to know what questions to ask, you know, thinking what we should be asking is what are they reforming to and why are they doing it? And so yeah. my, my next question, um, I'm going to edit a little bit because you did so brilliantly explaining how, uh, originally my question was a little bit more about how, how the Roman Catholic church branched off from the small C Catholic church, the historical Orthodox church, and, and actually the reformers were staying true to that church. So I'm going to actually add a little bit of an extra question was speaking of context and influential groups. Um, there is a term out there just to, so for clarification, so people know the difference there's also, there's the radical reformers, and then yeah. there's the magisterial reformers. So as the radical reformers, do they mean they're just extra special, more effective? More yeah, <laughs> they're like, like the extra Calvinistic come. It's like, oh, we get we get more Calvin. Yeah. Or or <laughs> and, and are the magisterial reformers, are those the guys that we're talking about? So maybe you can help yeah. clarify that for the for the audience. Yeah, it's it's a very important distinction. The failure to distinguish between the magisterial reformers and, and different radical groups, uh, it's one of the reasons why people misunderstand what it means to be Protestant today. Um, it's not that this is the only thing, but uh, you look at any number of individuals out there today that are waving around the Reformation flag, and I think any number of historians would say, well, this is ironic because you mm -hmm. look more like one of the radicals of the 16th century than <laughs> yeah. the reformers. Yeah, yeah. And if the reformers were alive today, they would have some Biggest pretty issue. strong words for you. Especially Luther. Yeah, especially Luther, no doubt. Um, this is an important point uh, because in the 16th century, Granted, uh, and I have an entire chapter on this. Um, I call it Abandoning Catholicity for Primitive Christianity, hmm. um, Radicals and Revolutionaries. It, again, it could be a whole book, but mm -hmm. very briefly, I give attention to different pockets of radicals. Uh, that some, of, some of these groups are very different from one another. 
you know, some are revolutionary, some are pacifists. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. At the same time, though, there is a certain um, a certain instinct, if I could call it that, that defines them, um, even if to di different degrees. Um, what is this instinct? Well, it comes out in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, you see it with scripture. Um, there's a radicalization of sola scriptura. Uh, so it, it, it then becomes what we might today call nuda scriptura uh, or, or solo mm -hmm. scriptura. Uh, in other words, which and, and sounds good, like oh, nude and solo yeah. scripture, like of course, like <laughs> just just scripture. Yeah, yeah, it could sound good, right? Uh, Heiko Oberman's, if if you want a historian who's done some uh, really helpful work here, Heiko Oberman will differentiate then uh, in an important way between tradition one, tradition two, and 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 with the radicals, what he calls tradition zero, mm -hmm. which probably gives it away, right? Uh, as if scripture. It, it assumes that scripture is the only authority. Reformers never thought that. Mm -hmm. uh, they thought scripture was our final authority. Mm -hmm. But uh, to to say there is no other authority uh, is to then act like, well, the Reformation is against tradition. Mm -hmm. That would have that would have puzzled the reformers. Um, they certainly didn't think they were against tradition. Uh, I think a better way to pose the Reformation is. It's not as it's not scripture versus tradition, reformers versus Roman Catholics. It's rather tradition versus tradition. What what kind of tradition should we embody and embrace and and practice? Not whether there is tradition. To to ask that question is to move you into the radical camp, hmm. and uh, you know there's some very uh, vocal <laughs> examples mm -hmm. of this um you have someone uh like sebastian frank who will basically look at everyone from augustine to, to gregory you know he's, he's just going through the church fathers one by one and and says yeah none of them were christians <laughs> mm -hmm. uh and and none of them knew knew the lord um in fact uh this is this is uh these are apostles of antichrist yeah well yep. there there you go uh, now, mm -hmm. not all go to that extreme, um, but the instinct is still there. So even with, let's just take someone who is far more, uh, far more tame um, and will use tradition, uh, Menno Simons. Mm -hmm. uh, but even there, even with Menno Simons, um, you think of his, his debate with uh, Johannes Lasko and isn't it interesting that the debate at the end of the day comes down to whether Menno Simons has paid attention at all to uh, Chalcedonian Christology, uh, to one of the creeds, uh, and, and whether uh, he's actually being Orthodox or not. Uh, well, the point is there. there's a radical tendency here to think that we uh, pick up the Bible alone. When Luther at, at the Diet of Worms, when Luther said that he stands on on the authority and the witness and the voice of Scripture, we sometimes forget he says and and clear reason. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think he means there like, oh, you know, this is kind of sometimes how some Protestant liberals interpreted him as if he's, oh, here's the enlightenment, you know, the seeds of it. I, I don't think that's what's happening. I think what Luther is saying is, um, I, I stand in a stream uh, in which there has been clear reason so that uh, the, the way that we are interpreting the scriptures, uh, I'm not, yeah, it may look like because you're against me that I'm doing so against the church, but in another sense, I'm doing so with the church. Hmm. Uh, and then as Luther develops uh, and ages, he begins to show that uh, more and more. You think of uh, the late 1530s, uh, Luther writes uh, in, in 1538, I think it is, he writes uh, this little book called The Three Symbols uh, of uh, or, or Creeds of the Christian Faith. Well, here is Luther basically saying, yes, we scripture is our final authority because it alone is inspired by God and inerrant and sufficient. Uh, but Luther is acknowledging uh, tradition is a subservient authority that is instrumental then to rightly interpreting scripture so that we don't end up in heresy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. so he's boasting at different points that we say the Nicene, we sing the Nicene Creed every Sunday, he says. Well, this is very different than from that radical instinct. And I think in many ways, the reformers are laboring. Sometimes they're very frustrated because uh, Rome, or sometimes even certain secular authorities, are looking at the reformers, and they're confusing the magisterial reformers with these radicals, mm -hmm. as if they too are are a type of innovative sect that has has branched off, and that frustrates them to no end. And so they're laboring at times. I mean, if you want a great example of this, listeners may may enjoy this. Go read the Augsburg Confession. It, it is so repetitive because mm -hmm. the, uh, individuals like Melanchthon are saying, we are not radicals. Uh, don't confuse us with them. And so they are, mm -hmm. they, they are naming them because they want to show, no, we, are, we have the right to that one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And, and here's our confession. Read it. You'll see that, that this, this is true. Totally. Yeah. Going, going kind of along these lines about misunderstandings and conflation or, or no tradition or tradition, whatever it may be. Uh, and there's been, and, and as you know, there's been debates as of late. And I don't want to just zero in on, on kind of the, the contemporary debates on this, um, on scholasticism, Aquinas, Aristotle, some of these things, uh, and, and kind of just putting all the scholastic blame on Aquinas when Aquinas is not the first scholastic, he's building off of work from people before him. He's utilizing, Aristotle using Lombard, using people before him. Um, can you describe uh, how the reformers utilize a scholastic approach? Because I think sometimes they think, oh, it's classic theology. Like there's a scholastic theology in and of itself versus a way of doing theology. Yeah. And particularly so of Aquinas. Um, and not just like everything that Aquinas did, because some stuff obviously we would disagree with, but the way he did it. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about this more today. And there certainly is a tendency out there. Uh, if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. Yeah, go on uh, social media for five minutes in Christian yeah. Twitter and you'll find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's probably not great for your soul, but... No, um, it's not. I would not, I would not advise it. Yeah, it, you'll bump into it where uh, there's just this hostility towards Aquinas. Um, 
you'll see it in the labels used, uh, papist and, and uh, you know, pagan. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of labels be, that are used of, of him. Um, in one sense, I feel really sorry. Uh, I, I don't mean that in a condescending way, but I mean it truly. I, I really do feel sorry for some of these people who have this misunderstanding. Uh, because I think what's hiding underneath is they're afraid. Hmm. You know, there's that famous phrase, you, you're afraid of what you don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm very confident. I've been teaching for over 10 years now. I'm very confident that most problems have never read Thomas Aquinas in any extended way. No. So there's a, there's a, a fear that's driving us sometimes. We're, we're afraid of what we don't know. Yeah. And, and sometimes that fear, we mask it with a, a certain uh, hatred <laughs> towards yeah, Aquinas. We, or we see him so utilized by the Roman Catholic Church. It's like, oh, we can't, we can't touch that guy. He's, he's been used by them. You know, and that's a great way of putting it because it, it it's almost like we're playing by their rules so they claimed him and well i guess yeah, i guess, I guess that's, that's ours yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh it's so it's so odd isn't it because um like you said he's one among many yeah uh, i mean there there are so many others uh boethius predates the roman catholic church by 300 years at least the official codification yes yeah uh, and that's another mis mis uh misunderstanding uh it's 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 a bit anachronistic, maybe a lot anachronistic to even use the word Roman Catholic in a sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, because until you get to Trent, yep. there is no. It does not exist. Uh, yeah. I mean, even even a doctrine as central as justification, uh, we we don't have uh, a definitive once and for all decree yeah. on even this type on a doctrine that's important. Uh, now, once you get to Trent, it, it does become quite, it does become more official. That's not to say that there's not Roman Catholic theology that's in the works, part of that point. Of yeah. course there is. But it is to, to say, if you buy into that narrative, then then it's really hard to make sense of what the reformers are doing when they say, no, no, you, the, the innovations are recent on your part, not ours. Um, so all that to say, uh, yes. What do the reformers and their children do? They disagree with Aquinas. Uh, yes, but it depends what you are talking about. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about whether righteousness is infused or imputed, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're talking about transubstantiation, yes. Um, but what about uh, goodness? The majority of of yeah. the christian faith uh beyond that 98 percent of um, everything else he says besides those those few things i mean to disagree with aquinas on the trinity would i mean that would put you outside of orthodoxy or, <laughs> exactly. and we could say the same thing of christology i mean yeah yeah to dis uh, and here i'm talking about the essence of what what he's saying and beyond that uh there's a there's just a slew of ways in which aquinas's theology and philosophy become pivotal uh and it's not just him alone but they do it does become pivotal because um what he is saying about everything from uh the attributes and the existence of god to the beatific vision uh from christology and uh original sin to virtue and ethics well in one sense the reformers 
don't take issue with this. No. They're standing on the foundation. And it's not laid by merely Aquinas, um, though he gets our, our attention often because he's uh, such a, a significant uh, theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's so, maybe I should add something more here, because even on those doctrines where they do disagree with Aquinas, isn't it interesting that there's still nuance? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so take um, original sin, grace, predestination, justification. Uh, they do not agree. They do not disagree with Aquinas on all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may disagree with him on, say, uh, infusion versus imputation or or merit. Um, mm-hmm. But they actually think that Aquinas is far better uh, than, say, a William of Ockham mm-hmm. or a Gabriel mm-hmm. Beale. Yeah, among the they options think, they have to read, they're going to read Aquinas. Yeah, I mean, these later medieval classics, they're venturing into a type of semi-Pelagianism. Yeah. And so Aquinas, at the very least, is not nominalist or voluntarist. He has a, a very uh, substantiated understanding of God's righteousness and justice on the basis of which he understands uh, a, 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 a very, he has a very Augustinian affirmation mm-hmm. of original sin. Mm-hmm. It's, it's remarkable when you talk about grace, even his you know, there, it's not that there's no differences, but his articulation of election sounds very sounds similar reformed. to Calvin. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But the, but most importantly, uh, even when Protestants think, okay, Aquinas, you go really wrong here on, on say, you know, introducing um, the place of works. Nevertheless, at the very least, Aquinas thinks grace is primary. He's mm-hmm. not semi-Pelagian. No. And so, this is, um, I think this is telling. I mean, you even have someone like John Owen, mm-hmm. who comes much later, right? John Owen looks at, at, at Aquinas, and when, jo- when John Owen is refuting Socinians, uh, Molinists, Arminians, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Arminians, so think of those th- three groups, uh, he is utilizing uh, the idea of pure actuality and connected to it, simplicity, immutability, God's eternity, and much more, which of course are very, uh, you know, Thomas has his fingerprints on those. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's using those to root the reformed and the and the really the Puritans as well in a in a a more uh, orthodox understanding of God that he thinks that these other groups have have departed from. And then when he turns to even soteriology, you think, okay, well, surely John Owen has, has left Aquinas behind at this point. <laughs> yeah. But here is what I would call a critical retrieval. And so does he criticize Aquinas when it comes to infused habits or infu- and infused righteousness? Yes. He says, no, Aquinas, you, you shouldn't have put this in justification. But then Owen is, says, well, but this is, this category is, is actually very uh, appropriate for sanctification. Mm. <laughs> so, what what this may shock some people uh, if if they're not you know familiar with this conversation. I think what's happening here, and I know this is a bold statement, but both in philosophy and in theology, um, I would describe the Reformed tradition and its origin. In, in the 16th and 17th centuries. So think here of even like reformed scholastics. Yeah. 
uh, I would describe them. They're, they're not merely like cherry picking no, areas of all. agreement. Not at all. I think what they're doing is they are bringing along an Augustinian and even a Thomistic understanding of philosophy and theology. Mm-hmm. And where uh, they do disagree, they think we are actually refining these points so that those commitments come to their true end. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it you have to look for it because sometimes it's subtle, but it's there. I mean, you look at uh Jerome Zonke's or Zanke, depending on how you want to pronounce his name, his his work on on the doctrine of God, uh he's it, this seems to be what he's doing yeah. um so anyway all that to say that's i, I know i'm getting long-winded here uh, i have an entire chapter on this again it could be a whole book <laughs> yeah uh, david van drunen uh his has edited uh a book that has about 20 protestants in it mm-hmm. called aquinas among the protestants yep, yep also yep. an excellent resource if if listeners want to read further totally Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either $15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Yeah. yeah, that's that's where I was exposed to some of this stuff was under Van Drunen because we read Aquinas on Christology. We read Aquinas on the sacraments. We read Aquinas. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's some stuff we we might disagree with. But I mean, the way he gets there, his understanding, his the, the way he formulates theologically and helps you understand the nuances. Um, I mean, it's just it's hard to beat how he helps you along with these theological doctrines. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, think we... we I can't help myself. I think we also have to be consistent, right? Yeah. Um, if if you if you are going to demonize Thomas Aquinas, uh, you got to be consistent. I mean, oh, yeah. you, you have to then take a look at, I mean, this is where I think you become a radical rather than a reformer, mm. right? Because then you have to start picturing entire centuries yep. uh, as if these are completely lost, yep. as if the church has disappeared in a sense. Uh, and, and you have to be consistent. I mean, at that point, then you have to you have to start rejecting others. Uh, what are you going to do with an Augustine or a Boethius mm-hmm. or an Anselm mm-hmm. or a Bonaventure or mm-hmm. I, the list doesn't end. No. Um, so I I think that it's unfortunate, but I, I think that in some sense, we we kind of we insult the intelligence of the, the reformers and mm-hmm. the reforms classics as if they didn't have the ability to engage with the tradition the medieval Mm -hmm. tradition in a way that could uh appropriate uh their program and bring it along even to greater refinement in a way that uh needed to be done in a sense 
Yeah. Awesome. We, we, had, and I know you uh, know JV Fesco and respect him a lot. We've had him on talking just about this reformed oh, apologetics. Good. Yeah. yeah. Thomistic apologetics. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. He spoke very highly of Aquinas, uh, a reformed apologetics. It's like episode one of our last season. Yeah. People and, want, I think it's October 3rd of 2022. If, you, if people want to go back to Thomas and how he formulates apologetics. It's, but, it's oh, excellent. But, and like what you're saying, so many reformed people today that would be shocked that we actually agree with Roman Catholics on the Trinity, natural law, Christology. Oh, yeah. To the point where um, we had uh, a Roman Catholic come on our show and uh, talk about the Trinity. Yeah, same, same guy as you, Thomas. Yeah, <laughs> Thomas White. We had him on to talk about Trinity. Yeah, yeah, because we agree on the Trinity. Obviously, we're not talking about stuff we we disagree with Roman Catholics on some major, major issues, and he knows that too. Yeah. But the thing is, is excuse the pun, but we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think what makes this even more pertinent to our day, right, is we are not living in the 16th century. Uh, we are living in the aftermath of modernity and post-modernity. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And and so, you know, J.V. Fesco is a great resource on this. Uh, we, in a sense, we do live in a world that has been disenchanted in which mm -hmm. God's presence, that that participation in the likeness of, of God, that, that has been severed at, to, the, to such a radical degree that uh, we could in, even entertain atheism. Yep. Now, in light of, in, in the aftermath of, of the Emmanuel Kants and, and the David Humes of the world, let alone new atheism, I think we are foolish then to, to think we, are on major issues like, does God exist? <laughs> uh, or, or are there arguments that we can make as Christians for the existence of God that Aquinas wouldn't be an ally? Totally. Um, because, and I think someone who, if, if you, I think people without realizing this is why they love C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. uh, Lewis is a medieval mind. Oh, yeah. But he is operating in a modern world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he knows it. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. he thinks that that if he can if he can bring modern man back, in a sense, to understand the enchanted world of, of the medieval period, he doesn't think it's perfect, of course. Uh, he at least gets man back to those basic building blocks on which we can even talk about god that unfortunately is not a luxury that that we can enjoy anymore and so i think in a sense uh whether it's aquinas or, or someone else i mean it could be augustine um i think we have to to be like c.s lewis in our day yeah awesome. this, that tees out my last question perfectly um i keep referencing other episodes we had we just had the uh, the Augustan way. And we're talking about, like you said, with our context now is post Christendom and Augustine's context is pre Christendom. So he's actually, we can kind of use some of what Augustine was writing about. And obviously you're talking about the radical reformers earlier. They don't like the patristic early church fathers like Augustine, but both the reformers and the Roman Catholics claim him as their own. So there mm -hmm. is a debate that's also raged uh, concerning the true inheritors of uh, Augustinian theology, 
amongst other church fathers. I I've just recently gotten gone through confessions. I read confession, read confessions, Webervox, oh, and City of God. And right now I'm in Athanasius uh, four discourses. And so it's good to really get these uh, first five centuries uh, early church fathers to understand what the reformers are talking about too. But going back to um, who's claiming the Augustinian theology uh, and other early church fathers. So Augustine was generally viewed as the height of doctrinal formation in the early church. Luther was a monk of the Augustinian order for the Catholic church had understood themselves as Augustinian. So they accused the reformers of departing from Augustine. Uh, but in general, how did the reformers respond to this charge? Are are we as the uh, inheritors of the magisterial reformers, the, the true inheritors of Augustine theology, are we actually ecumenically holding hands with Roman Catholics on that one too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe to help out our listeners, I think people, people will kind of read Augustine a little selectively um sometimes and they get freaked out when they get to the baptismal regeneration or some other views that he has like oh can we actually can we actually see this guy yeah yeah i I love this question and i'm glad that the conversation has moved in in the patristic direction especially with someone like augustine Mm -hmm. uh yeah i i mean i'm sure that you know roman catholics would think i'm i'm biased here (laughs) but I do think that as Protestants, uh, we do have a right to retrieve Augustine. And I do think there's a sense in which uh, Augustine, uh, different aspects of Augustine's thought, uh, I I do see Protestants as bringing those aspects uh, along and perhaps even to, to greater refinement. Now, I, I, again, I know that's a bold thing to say, but I think the reformers themselves were doing this. I, and this is something I try to show in my book is just take grace, for example. It's not that the reformers didn't disagree with Augustine. Uh, I mean, Luther is quite uh, conspicuous about it when he essentially says that he, he's, he's not sure that Augustine gets him all the way to a forensic understanding of imputation. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But he loves Augustine because <laughs> Augustine, along with, you know, his uh, Luther's lectures on uh, the Psalms and Hebrews and Romans, uh, Augustine is uh, opening his eyes to the primacy of God's grace and salvation, sola gratia. And so in that sense, Augustine is uh, pivotal for the, for, for the, the very inception of the Reformation itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been entire books written, and I think rightly so, as to um, the, the Augustinian reception in the 16th century. And one, I mean, this this is this could put you on a whole other uh, adventure, but in one sense, you could think of the Reformation as a debate over who is truly Augustinian, and I, I think that that is a legitimate debate to have. Um, I also think that there are ways in which Augustine's mindset is 
not just fitting, but it's also timely for us today and very relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here I'm, I'm talking even beyond this theology of grace. You think, for example, of the ways uh, he talks about uh, uh, us being uh, pilgrims mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in his book, City of God. Mm-hmm. And what does it look like to uh, live in this world? Uh, you think of, uh, especially when it becomes hostile to Christianity, um, how do we understand the kingdom of God in that context? Uh, or, or for just to, to give another example, um, Augustine on the Trinity. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, here is Augustine, I don't think is simply uh, repeating Nicaea. He, he is affirming it, but he's also trying to understand, okay, uh, if this Nicene tr- Christianity is true, uh, how, how do I tease out then uh, what, 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 well, what later Anselm calls a, a faith-seeking understanding? How do I use a faith-seeking understanding approach to understand traces of the Trinity and, and how uh, inseparable operations, for example, then informs the missions mm. of, of the person and so on. Uh, so uh, these, in, in so many ways, uh, this is why earlier I said, I think we have to be consistent because um, in one sense, everybody in the Middle Ages is claiming to be Augustinian. Uh, everyone's debating in a sense as to what is Augustine's true line of thought. And, and so it's not so much uh, a debate over if Augustine uh, it, it c- carries forward, it's more a, d- a debate out of how do we interpret him and who, who are his true heirs? I think the reformers jump right into that conversation. And uh, this is another reason why, again, it, it, it really isn't even about Aquinas. It, it, in one sense, it's about Augustine. Um, do the reformers, I mean, these are the big questions, right? Do the reformers carry on Augustine's theology of grace? Do they imbibe uh, uh, his his metaphysic of say uh, universals, or how do they refine it? So all of these questions uh, continue on past Augustine's lifetime, and I think this is one of the reasons why so many have said Augustine may be uh, the greatest theologian in Christianity. Hmm. Yeah. So. Bringing this into uh, so we've gone from we, we've we've covered we've covered a lot of a lot of grounds. We went from reformers to medieval times to uh, back down to Augustine, and now we're going to go. And you, you've already you've um, previewed this a little bit. And I think I think a lot of our listeners might wonder how in the world are they making this connection between the reformers and the Enlightenment? Because my guess is your average Christian like those are two completely different things. Um, <laughs> But then there's some scholars, and I've read I've read a lot of them actually recently. Um, Charles Taylor, I think, is is one of those that that might be people might know him and some of the arguments that he makes, and he's developed this. Uh, and they, he talks about the the breakup of the hierarchy of the church, emphasis on personal virtue and study, um, back to the sources. Let's not worry about. Or it's not it's not just rely on the church authorities. And so he talks about this as like is kind of. Um, being the entryway into humanism, the entryway into like yeah. self-thought, personal thought. And you, you talked about this a little bit, uh, religious per- plurity and, and uh, internalization of religion. And so th- a bunch of things. So how, how do you approach this thesis that 
the reformers actually gave us the enlightenment. They like they were the, the entryway into enlightenment <laughs> into personal thought. Yeah. Well, I, I think the first thing I would say is I have enormous respect for Charles Taylor. Um, he's brilliant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh so much of what he's trying to put his finger on in terms of uh, secularization. And uh, I mean, we, we, we live in that world. Totally. And so I, I think he's trying to come to terms with it. Um, at the same time though, uh, it, 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 there's others. Uh, radical orthodoxy, for example, is yeah. Yeah. You know, one illustration. Uh, there can be this tendency to think, well, Okay, clearly, uh, when when you get to the the late medieval period, there's there's a, a pretty radical break mm -hmm. uh, in metaphysics, down all, all the way down to soteriology and even ecclesiology. And I think that whether it's Taylor or or radical orthodoxy, I think that you know we we could we could say okay, you know, could they deal with the sources better and represent them better? Yes. But I, I do think at the very least, they are right to notice something's changed. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with the voluntarism and the nominalism that rises to the surface over against the intellectualism of, of past classics like Aquinas, for example. Sure. And, and their realism. Now, uh, that being said, uh, I think that's, a, that's, that's right enough. You know, we can we can debate over, you know, how well do they understand and, and that sort of thing. But but their instinct is right. Yeah. Clearly, clearly there is um, a, a radical break at this point. Um, the question, though, where this is where I take issue, the question then becomes, OK, well, that we do see this. We, we do see those same tendencies uh, after modernism. Yeah. So how how do we get there? What's the bridge? Mm -hmm. um, and that's where they look at the reformers and they say, there it is. Yep. Um, it, it seems to match chronologically. Mm -hmm. um, more than that, if, and you could see how you could interpret reformers this way, right? Luther is talking about an alien righteousness, mm -hmm. something outside of us. Uh, whatever happened to uh, participation in, in, in the likeness of God and and in God's real presence to, to create a, a real internal change in us. Um, aren't we just emphasizing now imputation as something external that, that is just transactional? Or, or, you know, what about the sacraments? Uh, do they just completely go um, in a voluntarist anomalous direction? Um, so there's all kinds of questions at this point over the reformers. Uh, should we interpret them that way? Uh, are they to blame? for the voluntarism and nominalism that seems to carry forward uh, into, into modernism. Mm -hmm. um, the, the problem with that narrative, okay, is yes, it is very convenient. Mm -hmm. uh, I won't deny that. And chronologically, I see how you get there. The problem is the formers though are so more nuanced than that. Yeah. Um, they're more complicated. They're yep. just way more complicated <laughs> than that. Uh, you take Calvin and the Lord's Supper. Calvin does have a, a, a strong emphasis on participation. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, he's very critical of, of Zwingli. 
Um, this is not a, a type of uh, just a, as Calvin will call it, this is not just some naked mere uh, memorial. Um, that's probably not fair to Zwingli, but that's another story. <laughs> totally. uh, but but the point that Calvin's trying to make is, uh, you know, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And, mm-hmm. and so Christ, there is the presence of Christ uh, is not a, a, a fiction. Uh, rather, the Holy Spirit uh, lifts us up into the heavenlies so that yep. we participate and, and yep. have communion with the risen and ascended Christ. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just painting with a broad brush here, but that's just one example among many that shows actually this probably not fair to the reformers then to say that they've cut this cord of participation. And so now you enter into this world with the Reformation mm-hmm. uh, in which God is just making these you know, voluntarist uh, decisions and uh, morality and virtue become almost relative. Uh, they're not based in something universal. Yep. Actually, yep. there's there's been great books, you know, by Todd Billings and uh, I think it's Julie Canlis that have been written uh, saying, well, uh, they, especially when you get to the Reformed classics, they do have an understanding of universals and mm-hmm. they do they do believe that uh, they're, they're even Neoplatonic in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that to say, it's just not nuanced enough. Um, I think the blame is elsewhere. Ultimately, it's not mm-hmm. that the reformers don't have any tendencies uh, in the wrong direction towards a nominalism or a voluntarism. But I don't think they're ultimately to blame. Uh, this is just uh, this. I think further research needs to be done here. But I think rather than blaming, say, the Protestant scholastics, I, I think uh, it might be better to look at the Sassinians. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just one example of, well, how do we get to an age in which uh, doctrines that were previously orthodox, uh, now now these are questioned altogether and, and we begin to enter into a heretical direction that that is grounded in a, a philosophical deviation in the end. Totally. Yeah, that's that's been helpful. I think I, I hope this this conversation has been helpful for for many. And, and they pick up your book and they they see their theological, their historical forefathers, and not just their forefathers in the, in the Reformed faith, but the reformers' theological and historical forefathers. And they see this line of succession and this renewal, and not this break. But Dr. Barrett, it's been a pleasure having you on our show for the second time. Thanks so much for coming on and talking about your book. Absolutely, great to be on. Thank you. Absolutely, yeah. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel from whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from or confessional tradition. uh, We all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and, and denominations. Uh, we, we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before, authors that you might not have heard of before. Um, I've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these. If you want to go to our show notes, find a link to the publisher. That helps them out a ton. A link to the author's page, to the book, to purchase it from the publisher themselves. It really helps them um, expose their work uh, through the publisher themselves. 
Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to wet your palate. You can we have already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author, and then go from there. Yeah. So if you want to find these books and uh, and purchase one for yourself, purchase one for friends or family, and also too, if you can find us on Apple, Spotify, any podcast catcher, rate and review us. That's that's how we're that's how we're best known. It's how we kind of make ourselves known. Uh, introduce these to a friend and and maybe just. Build your bookcase, build your reading, uh, read broader and and read really well, all under the umbrella of our creedal faith under Jesus Christ. 